Chapter 1. Good is the enemy of great. Good is the enemy of great. And that is one of the key reasons why we have so little that becomes great. We don't have great schools, principally because we have good schools. We don't have great government, principally because we have good government, and it works pretty well. The vast majority of companies never become great precisely because the vast majority become quite good, and therein lies their main problem. And the truth be told, the vast majority of people will look back from the end of their lives and realize that they did not have a great life, in large part because it is just so easy to settle for a good one. This became piercingly clear to me in 1996 when I was having dinner with a group of thought leaders gathered for a discussion about organizational performance. Bill Meehan, the managing director of the San Francisco office of McKinsey & Company, leaned over his salad and casually confided, you know, Jim, we love your book Built to Last around here. You and your co-author did a very fine job on the research and writing. Unfortunately, it's useless. Curious, I asked Meehan to explain his useless comment. The companies you wrote about were, for the most part, always great, he said. They never had to turn themselves from good companies into great companies. They had parents like David Packard and George Merck who shaped the character of greatness from early on. They instilled the genetics. But what about the vast majority of companies that wake up partway through life and realize they're good, but not great? I realized that Meehan was exaggerating for effect with his useless comment, but his essential observation was correct and disturbing, that truly great companies, for the most part, have always been great. Great is great, good is good, and never the twain shall meet. Or at least it seems that way. The vast majority of good companies remain just that, good but not great. Indeed, Meehan's comment proved to be an invaluable gift to me, as it planted the seed of a question that became the basis of this entire project. Namely, can a good company become a great company? And if so, how? Or, on the other hand, is the disease of just being good incurable if you're only average, are you doomed to remain average? Five years after that fateful dinner, we can now say without question that good to great does happen, and we've learned much about the underlying variables that make it happen. Inspired by Bill Meehan's challenge, my research team and I embarked on a five-year research effort, a journey to explore the inner workings of good to great. To quickly grasp the concept of the project, picture in your mind a stock chart that is absolutely flat, going nowhere until, bang, it just explodes upward at a steeper than 45-degree angle. In essence, we identified companies that made the leap from good results to great results and sustained those results for at least 15 years. We compared these companies to a carefully selected control group of comparison companies that failed to make the leap, or if they did, they failed to sustain it. We then compared the two sets of companies to discover the essential and distinguishing factors that make for good to great. The good to great examples that made the final cut into the study attained extraordinary results. Averaging cumulative stock returns 6.9 times the general market in 15 years following their transition points. Now, to put that in perspective, General Electric, considered by many to be the best-led company in America at the end of the 20th century, outperformed the market by 2.8 times over the 15 years, 1985 to 2000. 
less than half the rate of performance of the good to great set. Furthermore, if you invested $1 in a mutual fund of the good to great companies in 1965, holding each company at the general market rate until the date of transition, and you simultaneously put a dollar in a general market stock fund, your $1 in the good to great fund taken out on January 1, 2000 would have multiplied 471 times. Every dollar would have given you $471 back, compared to only a 56-fold increase in the general market. These are remarkable numbers by any measure, made all the more remarkable when you consider the fact that they came from companies that had previously been so utterly unremarkable. Consider just one case, one of my favorite from the study, Walgreens. For over 40 years, Walgreens was the walking embodiment of mediocrity. It had bumped along as a very average company, more or less tracking the general market. Then in 1975, seemingly out of nowhere, bang, Walgreens began to climb and climb and climb and climb and climb, and it just kept right on climbing. From December 31, 1975 to January 1, 2000, a dollar invested in Walgreens beat a dollar invested in technology superstar Intel by nearly two times, General Electric by nearly five times, Coca-Cola by nearly eight times, and the general stock market, including the NASDAQ stock run-up to the end of 1999, by over 15 times. You gotta want to know how they did that. How on earth did a company with such a long history of being nothing special transform itself into an enterprise that outperformed some of the best-led organizations in the world? Not by a little bit, but by multiples. And why was Walgreens able to make the leap when other companies in the same industry with the same opportunities and similar resources at the exact same time, such as Eckerd, did not make the leap? This single case captures the essence of our quest. But I want to be clear. Good to great is not about Walgreens per se or any of the specific companies we studied. It is about the question. Can a good company become a great company? And if so, how? Good to great is about our search for timeless, universal answers that can be applied by any organization. Our five-year quest yielded many insights, a number of them surprising and quite contrary to conventional wisdom. And indeed, I would say a number of them are going to upset and bother not a small number of people. But one giant conclusion stands above the others. We believe that almost any organization can substantially improve its stature and performance, perhaps even become great, if it conscientiously applies the framework of ideas we've uncovered. In the rest of this chapter, I will tell you the story of our journey, outlining our research method, and I will preview our key finding. Then in the next chapter, we'll launch headlong into the findings themselves, beginning with one of the most provocative of the entire study, a concept that we call Level 5 Leadership. People often ask me, what motivates you to undertake these huge research projects? It's a good question. There are a heck of a lot easier ways to write best-selling books than to do five-year massive research projects. The basic answer is one thing, curiosity. There is nothing I find more exciting than picking a question that I don't know the answer to and embarking on a quest for answers. It's deeply satisfying to climb into the boat, like Lewis and Clark, and head west, saying, we don't know what we're going to find when we get there, but we'll let you know when we get back. Here's the abbreviated story of this particular odyssey of curiosity. 
there were four basic phases to our research effort. Phase one was the search for companies. Phase two, doing the comparison set. Phase three, climbing inside the black box of good to great and figuring out what's in there. And phase four is taking the chaos of tons of data and creating concepts out of it, or chaos to concept. Phase one, the search. With a question in hand, can a good company become a great company, and if so, how? I began to assemble a team of researchers. In fact, when I use we throughout this reading, I'm referring to the research team. In all, 21 wonderful people worked on this project at key points, usually in teams of four to six at a time. Our first task was to find companies that showed the good to great pattern. We launched a six-month death march of financial analysis, at least as we came to call it, looking for companies that showed the following basic pattern. 15-year cumulative stock returns at or below the general stock market, punctuated by a transition point, a moment of upward shift. Then cumulative returns at least three times the market over the next 15 years. Again, picture that chart. Flat for 15 years, bang, transition point, up for 15 years. We picked 15 years because it would transcend one-hit wonders and lucky breaks. Look, you can't just be lucky for 15 years. And would exceed the average tenure of most chief executive officers, helping us to separate great companies from companies that just happen to have a single great leader. We picked the 3x hurdle, that is, beating the market three times in 15 years, because it exceeds the performance of most widely acknowledged great companies. For example, if you had an opportunity to invest in a marquee set of the following companies from 1985 to 2000, 3M, Boeing, Coca-Cola, GE, Hewlett-Packard, Intel, Johnson & Johnson, Merck, Motorola, Pepsi, Procter & Gamble, Walmart, and Disney, your investment would have beat the market 2.5 to 1 in those companies. So beating the market three times in 15 years means beating a mutual fund of those marquee companies. Not a bad set to beat. From an initial universe of companies that appeared on the Fortune 500 in the years 1965 to 1995, we systematically searched and sifted, looking for that good-to-great pattern, and eventually found 11 good-to-great examples. I'd like to underscore a couple of key points here. First, a company had to demonstrate the good-to-great pattern independent of its industry. If the whole industry showed the same pattern, we dropped the company. Second, we debated whether we should use additional selection criteria beyond cumulative stock returns, such as impact on society or employee welfare. We decided, though, to limit our selection to the good-to-great results pattern, as we really couldn't come up with any legitimate and consistent method for selecting on other variables without introducing our own biases. In the last chapter of this reading, I will address the relationship between corporate values and enduring great companies. But the focus of this particular research effort is on the very specific question of how to turn a good organization into one that produces sustained great results. So who were the 11 remarkable good-to-great cases? Here they are. Abbott Laboratories, which beat the market 3.98 times from 1974 to 1989. Circuit City, which beat the market 18.5 to 1 from 82 to 97. 
Fannie Mae beat the general stock market 7.56 to 1, from 84 to 99. Gillette, which beat the general stock market by 7.39 times, from 1980 to 1995. Kimberly Clark, which beat the general market by 3.42 times, from 1972 to 1987. Kroger, a grocery chain of all things, which beat the general stock market by 4.17 times, from 1973 to 1988. Nucor, a steel company, beat the general stock market 5.16 to 1, from 1975 to 1990. Philip Morris beat the general market 7.06 to 1, from 1964 to 1979. Pitney Bowes beat the general market 7.16 to 1 from 1973 to 1988. Walgreens beat the general stock market by 7.34 times from 1975 to 1990. And Wells Fargo, which beat the general stock market by 3.99 times from 1983 to 1998. If you're at all like we were on the research team, you're surprised by the list. We were very surprised by the list. Who would have thought that Fannie Mae, the mortgage company, would beat companies like GE and Coke? Or that Walgreens could beat Intel? It's a surprising list. A dowdier group would be hard to find. But it taught us a key lesson right up front. It's possible to turn good into great in the most unlikely of situations. If Walgreens can do it, if Nucor can do it, if Kroger can do it, anyone can do it. Phase 2. Compared to what? We then took perhaps the most important step in the entire research effort, contrasting the good-to-great companies to a set of comparison companies. The crucial question in our study is not, what did the good-to-great companies have in common? The critical question is, what did they have in common that set them apart from the comparison companies? We selected two sets of comparisons. The first set consisted of direct comparisons, Companies that were in the same industry as the good-to-great companies with the same opportunities, same resources, same basic situation. They were almost identical clones of each other at the time of transition, but that showed no leap from good-to-great. I will briefly list the direct comparison companies preceded by the good-to-great company. For example, I'm going to say Abbott, the good-to-great company, direct comparison company, being Upjohn. So I'll give you a complete list. Circus City's direct comparison, Silo. Fannie Mae compared to Great Western. Gillette compared to Warner Lambert. Kimberly Clark compared to Scott Paper. Kroger compared to A&P. Nucor compared to Bethlehem Steel. Philip Morris compared to R.J. Reynolds. Pitney Bowes compared to Addressograph. Walgreens compared to Eckerd. And Wells Fargo compared to Bank of America. As I mentioned, there are two sets of comparisons in this study. The first were the direct comparisons, which I just gave you. The second consists of unsustained comparisons. Now, these were companies that made a short-term shift from good to great, but they failed to maintain the trajectory. They fell off after four years or seven years or nine years. This helped us to address the question of just sustainability. For example, Rubbermaid is one of our unsustained comparisons. This company went from good to great in the 1980s. In fact, it became the number one Fortune Most Admired company. But then it imploded in the 1990s, eventually being bought out by Newell. Why? Why was it not able to sustain 
its leap from good to great. Another unsustained comparison is Chrysler, which had a dramatic turnaround under a leader named Lee Iacocca. Sadly, the Chrysler transition failed to endure, and today the company is owned by the Germans. We selected six unsustained comparisons. In addition to Chrysler and Rubbermaid, we looked at Burroughs, Harris, Hasbro, and Teledyne. In all, this gave us a total study set of 28 companies, 11 good to greats, 11 direct comparisons, and six unsustained comparisons. The third phase of the research was looking inside the black box. After we had the complete list of companies, we turned our attention to a deep analysis of each case. We collected all the articles published on all the companies in the study dating back 50 years or more. We systematically coded all the material into categories such as strategy, technology, leadership, and so forth. We also interviewed most of the good-to-great executives who held key positions of responsibility during the transition era. We also did a wide range of qualitative and quantitative analyses, looking at everything from acquisitions to executive compensation, from business strategy to corporate culture, from layoffs to leadership style, from financial ratios to management turnover. Anything we could analyze, anything we could get data on, we looked at it. When it was all said and done, the total project consumed 10 and a half people years of effort. We read and systematically coded 6,000 articles, generated more than 2,000 pages of interview transcripts, and created 384 million bytes of computer data. We came to think of our research as like looking inside a giant black box. Each step along the way, each analysis, each interview, each coding, each article was like installing another light bulb to shed light on the inner workings of the good to great process. We'd climb inside the black box, we'd screw in a light bulb, we'd turn it on, and we'd look to see what's there. With all this data in hand, we then began a series of weekly research team debates. For each of the 28 companies, members of the team and I would systematically read all the articles, analyses, interviews, and the research coding. I'd then come and make a presentation to the team on that specific company, drawing potential conclusions and asking questions. Then we would debate, disagree, pound on tables, raise our voices, pause and reflect, debate some more, pause and think, discuss, resolve, question, and debate yet again about what it all means. Now, it's important to understand that we developed all of the concepts in this work by making empirical deductions directly from the data. We did not begin this project with a theory to test or prove. We sought to build a theory from the ground up, derived directly from the evidence. The core of our method was a systematic process of contrasting the good to great examples to the comparisons, always asking, so what's different? We also made a particular note of dogs that did not bark. In the Sherlock Holmes classic book, Silver Blaze, Holmes identified the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime as the key clue. Well, it turns out that the dog didn't do anything in the nighttime. And that, according to Holmes, was the curious incident, which led him to the conclusion that the prime suspect must have been someone who knew the dog well. In our study, similar to Holmes, what we didn't find, the dogs we might have expected to bark but didn't, turned out to be some of the best clues to the inner workings of good to great. When we stepped inside the black box and turned on the light bulbs, we were frequently just as astonished at what we did not see as what we did. For example, you might expect that larger-than-life celebrity leaders who ride in from the outside would be key to taking a company from good to great. 
This dog did not bark. Ten of 11 good to great CEOs came from inside the company, whereas the comparison companies tried outside CEOs six times more often. I'm sorry, but the myth of the savior CEO is just that, a big myth. Or consider this. We found no systematic pattern whatsoever, none, zip, nada, that linked specific forms of executive compensation to the process of going from good to great. The idea that the structure of executive compensation is a key driver in corporate performance is simply not supported by the data. Or all the discussion about strategy and long-range strategic planning. Not that the good to great companies ignored strategy, but it turns out that both sets of companies had well-defined strategies. And there's no evidence that the good to great companies spent more time on long-range strategic planning than the comparison companies. Or take this. Ask yourself the question, do you have a to-do list? I imagine you do. And you would think that to start a transition from good to great, you'd just start adding a whole lot of stuff to that to-do list. But what we found when we stepped inside the black box is that the stop-doing list, the things they decided to get rid of, counted more than the to-do list. Oh, and here in the 2000s, we sure think that technology drives everything. It is the great mana of the age. But it turns out that when you look closely inside the black box of good to great, technology and technology-driven change has virtually nothing to do with igniting a transformation from good to great. We did find technology to accelerate transformations, but we learned that technology cannot cause a transformation. It can never be the fundamental prime mover in a shift from good to great. With all the buying and selling on Wall Street, you would think that mergers and acquisitions must play a vital role. And they do play a role, but they play virtually no role in igniting a transformation, meaning they're not there at the beginning. Two big mediocrities joined together never make one great company. Later in the book, I will explain what role acquisitions do play. But if you think that you can go from good to great by buying something, think again. The good to great companies, you would think, spend a lot of time launching change programs and trying to figure out how to motivate employees. Sorry, but this is a barking dog too, or should I say, a dog you would expect to bark but didn't. They paid scant attention to managing change, motivating people, or creating alignment. Under the right conditions, we learned, the problems of commitment, alignment, motivation, and change largely melt away. They take care of themselves. And speaking of change programs, you would expect that they might have had a change program to change their stature from good to great. Well, guess what? This dog did not bark. They had no name, no tagline, no launch event, no program to signify their transformation. In fact, some reported being unaware of the magnitude of the transformation at the time they were going through it. Only in retrospect did it become clear. Yes, they did produce truly revolutionary leaps in results, but they did not do it by a revolutionary process. And finally, whenever I introduce the Good to Great research project, people always think, well, these companies must have just been in the right place at the right time, or they were in a great industry. But guess what? They were by and large not in the right place at the right time. They were by and large not in great industries, and a number of them were in absolutely terrible industries. 
In no case do we have a company that just happened to be sitting on the nose cone of a rocket when it took off. And this brings me to one of the most fundamental things to grasp early in this reading. Greatness is not, underscore not, a function of circumstance. Greatness, it turns out, is largely a matter of conscious choice. Phase four of the research, going from chaos to concept. I've tried to come up with a simple way to convey what was required to go from all the data analyses, debates, and dogs that did not bark to the final findings. The best answer I can give is that it's an iterative process of looping back and forth, developing ideas and testing them against the data, revising those ideas, building a framework, seeing it break under the weight of evidence, and rebuilding it yet again. The process is repeated over and over, until everything hangs together in a coherent framework of concepts. We all have a strength or two in life, and I suppose mine is the ability to take a lump of unorganized information, see patterns, and extract order from the mess, or what my friends call going from chaos to concept. That said, I want to underscore again that the concepts in the final framework are not my opinions. While I cannot extract my own psychology and my own biases entirely from the research, the findings in the final framework met a rigorous standard before the research team would deem it significant. Every primary concept in the final framework showed up as a change variable in 100% every single one of the good-to-great companies and in less than 30% of the comparison cases during the pivotal years. Any insight, any concept, any piece of the framework that failed this test did not make it into good to great as a chapter-level concept. So what did we find? What were the dogs that did bark? Here is an overview of the framework of concepts and a preview of what's to come in the rest of the recording. This reading is broken up into nine chapters. The first chapter we're in right now. The remaining eight chapters lay out all the key findings. In chapter two, we will talk about level five leadership. We were surprised, shocked really, to discover the type of leadership required for turning a good company into a great one. Compared to high-profile leaders with big personalities who make headlines and become well-known celebrities, the good great leaders seem to have come from Mars. Self-effacing, quiet, reserved, awkward, even shy. These leaders are a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. They are more like Lincoln and Socrates than Patton or Caesar. In chapter three, we will get to the all-important principle of first who, then what. We expected that the good to great leaders would begin by setting a new vision and strategy. We found instead that they first got the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, and the right people on the right seats, and then they figured out where to drive it. The old adage, people are your most important asset, turns out to be wrong. People are not your most important asset. The right people are. With the right people on the bus, we then turn to chapter four and the key dimension of confronting the brutal facts, yet never losing faith. We learned that a prisoner of war survivor had more to teach us about what it takes to find a path to greatness than most books on corporate strategy. Every good to great company embraced what we came to call the Stockdale Paradox. You must maintain unwavering 
faith that you can and you will prevail in the end, regardless of the difficulties. And yet at the same time, you also have to have the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be, and however unpleasant they might be. With the discipline of the Stockdale Paradox in mind, we then turn in Chapter 5 to the hedgehog concept, or what we call gaining simplicity within the three circles. To go from good to great requires transcending the curse of competence. Just because something is your core business, just because you've been doing it for years, perhaps even decades, doesn't mean you can be the best in the world at it. And if you can't be the best in the world at your core business, then your core business absolutely cannot form the basis of a great company. It must be replaced with a simple concept that reflects deep understanding of three intersecting circles. We will discuss all three in Chapter 5. With the hedgehog concept in hand, clearly getting yourself in the middle of the three circles, we then turn in Chapter 6 to building a culture of discipline. All companies have a culture. Some companies have discipline, but few have a culture of discipline. When you have disciplined people, you don't need hierarchy. When you have disciplined thought, you don't need bureaucracy. When you have disciplined action, you don't need excessive controls. When you combine a culture of discipline with an ethic of entrepreneurship, you get a magical alchemy of great performance. Late in the process, after you've made a breakthrough from good to great, you accelerate that breakthrough in Chapter 7 with what we call technology accelerators. It turns out that good-to-great companies think differently about the role of technology. They never use technology as the primary means of igniting a transformation. Yet, paradoxically, they are pioneers in the application of very carefully selected technologies. We learned that technology by itself is never a primary root cause of either greatness or decline. In Chapter 8, we turn to an overarching concept, a concept that wraps around most of the other concepts, called the flywheel. And we contrast that concept to something called the doom loop. Those who launch revolutions, dramatic change programs, and wrenching restructurings will almost certainly fail to make a sustained leap from good to great. No matter how dramatic the end result, the good to great transformations never happened in one fell swoop. There was no single defining action, no grand program, no one killer innovation, no solitary lucky break, no miracle moment. Rather, the process resembles relentlessly pushing a giant heavy flywheel in one direction, turn upon turn upon turn upon turn, building momentum until a point of breakthrough and beyond. Finally, in Chapter 9, we will take a look at what it takes to go from good to great to built to last. In an ironic twist, I now see Good to Great not as a sequel to Built to Last, but as really a prequel. Good to Great is about how to turn a good organization into one that produces sustained great results. Built to Last, my previous book with Jerry Hyporis, is about how you take a company with great results and turn it into an enduring great company of iconic stature. To make that final shift from good to great to built to last requires core values and a purpose beyond just making money, combined with a key dynamic of preserve the core and stimulate progress. If you're already a student of Built to Last, 
please set aside your questions about the links between the two studies as you embark upon this recording of Good to Great. In that last chapter, in Chapter 9, we will return to this question and link the two studies together. I had just finished presenting my research to a set of Internet executives gathered at a conference when a hand shot up in the back of the room. The young member of the Internet elite stood up and asked, Will your findings continue to apply in the future as the world changes? Don't we need to throw out all the old ideas and start from scratch? It is, after all, a new economy, a new world order. It's a legitimate question, as we do live in a time of dramatic change, and it comes up so often that I'd like to dispense of it right up front. Yes, without doubt, the world is changing, and it will continue to do so. But that does not mean that we should stop the search for timeless principles. Think of it this way. While the practices of engineering continually evolve and change, the laws of physics remain relatively fixed. I like to think of all of our work, in both good to great and built to last, as the search for timeless principles, the enduring physics of great organizations, that will remain true and relevant no matter how the world changes around us and no matter how the engineering we apply to that world changes. Yes, the specific application will change, but certain immutable laws of organized human performance will endure. So as you immerse yourself in the material, keep one key point in mind. This is not about the old economy. It's not about the new economy. It's not even about the companies you're learning about in this tape, or even about business per se. It's ultimately about one thing, the timeless principles, the enduring physics, the fundamental laws of good to great. It's about how you take a good organization and turn it into one that produces sustained great results, using whatever definition of results best applies to your organization. Now, let me share with you a not-so-secret secret. This might come as a surprise, but I don't primarily think of my work as about the study of business, and I don't consider myself a business author or this a business tape. Rather, I see my work as about discovering what creates enduring great organizations of any type. I'm curious to understand the fundamental differences between great and good, between excellence and mediocrity. I just happen to use corporations as a means of getting inside the black box. I do this because publicly traded corporations, unlike other types of organizations, have two huge advantages for research. One, a widely agreed upon definition of results, so we can rigorously select our study set. And second, a whole lot of accessible data. That good is the enemy of great is not just a business problem. It is a human problem. If we have cracked the code on the question of good to great, we should have something of value to any type of organization. Good schools might become great schools. Good newspapers might become great newspapers. Good churches might become great churches. Good government might become great government. And good companies might become great companies. And so I invite you to join me on an intellectual adventure to discover what it takes to turn good into great. But as you listen to this, I encourage you to question and to challenge what you learn. As one of my favorite professors once said to me, the best students are those who never quite believe their professors. True enough. But he also said, one ought not to reject the data merely because one does not like what the data implies. I offer everything herein for your consideration, not blind acceptance. You're the judge and jury. Let the evidence speak. Chapter 2, Level 5, Leadership. 
1971, a seemingly ordinary man named Darwin E. Smith became chief executive of Kimberly Clark, a stodgy old paper company whose stock had fallen 36% behind the general market over the previous 20 years. Smith, the company's mild-mannered in-house lawyer, wasn't so sure the board had made the right choice, a feeling further reinforced when a director pulled Smith aside and reminded him that he lacked some of the qualifications for the position. But CEO he was, and CEO he remained for 20 years. And oh, what a 20 years it was. In that period, Smith created a stunning transformation, turning Kimberly Clark into the leading paper-based consumer products company in the world. Under his stewardship, Kimberly Clark generated cumulative stock returns 4.1 times the general market, handily beating its direct rivals Scott Paper and Procter & Gamble, and outperforming such venerable companies as Coca-Cola, Hewlett-Packard, 3M, and General Electric. It's an impressive performance, one of the best examples in the 20th century of taking a good company and making it great. Yet have you ever heard of Darwin Smith? Few people, even ardent students of management and corporate history, know anything about Darwin Smith. Funny thing is, he would have liked it that way. A man who carried no airs of self-importance, Smith found his favorite companionship among plumbers and electricians, and he spent his vacations rumbling around his Wisconsin farm in the cab of a backhoe, digging holes and moving rocks. He never cultivated hero status or executive celebrity status. He liked his anonymity. When a journalist asked Smith to describe his management style, he just stared back from the other side of his nerdy-looking glasses, dressed unfashionably like a farm boy wearing his first suit bought at J.C. Penney. After a long, uncomfortable silence, he looked at the reporter and said simply, Eccentric. The Wall Street Journal did not write a splashy feature on Darwin Smith. But if you were to think of Darwin Smith as somehow meek or soft, you'd be terribly mistaken. His awkward shyness and lack of pretense was coupled with a fierce, even stoic resolve towards life. He grew up as a poor Indiana farm boy, putting himself through college by working the day shift at International Harvester and attending Indiana University at night. One day, he lost part of a finger on the job. The story goes that he went to class that evening and returned to work the next day. Well, that might be a bit of an exaggeration. He clearly did not let part of a lost finger slow down his progress towards graduation. He kept working full-time. He kept going to class at night, and he earned admission to Harvard Law School. Later in life, two months after becoming CEO, doctors diagnosed Smith with nose and throat cancer, predicting that he had less than a year to live. He informed the board, but made it clear that he was not dead yet, and he had no plans to die anytime soon. He was going to kill this thing if he could. He held fully to his demanding work schedule while commuting from Wisconsin to Houston for radiation therapy and lived 25 more years, most of them as CEO. Smith brought that same ferocious resolve to rebuilding Kimberly Clark, especially when he made the most dramatic decision in the company's history, sell the mills. Shortly after he became CEO, Smith and his team had concluded that the traditional core business, coated paper, was doomed to mediocrity. Its economics were bad and the competition weak. But, they reasoned, if Kimberly Clark thrust itself into the fire of the consumer paper products industry, world-class competition like Procter & Gamble would force it to achieve greatness or perish. So like the general who burned the boats upon landing, leaving only one option, succeed or die, 
Smith announced the decision to sell the mills in what one board member called the gutsiest move he'd ever seen a CEO make. Sell even the mill in Kimberly, Wisconsin, as Kimberly Clark, and throw all the proceeds into the consumer business, investing in brands like Huggies and Kleenex. The business media called the move stupid, and Wall Street analysts downgraded the stock. But Smith never wavered. 25 years later, Kimberly Clark owned Scott Paper outright and beat Procter & Gamble in six of eight product categories. In retirement, Smith reflected on his exceptional performance by saying simply, I never stopped trying to become qualified for the job. Darwin Smith stands as a classic example of what we came to call a level five leader, an individual who blends extreme personal humility with intense professional will. We found leaders of this type at the helm of every good to great company during the transition era. Like Smith, they were self-effacing individuals who displayed the fierce resolve to do whatever needed to be done to make the company great. Level five leaders channel their ego needs away from themselves and into the larger goal of building a great company. It's not that they have no ego or self-interest. In fact, they are incredibly ambitious. But their ambition is first and foremost for the institution, not themselves. The term level five refers to the highest level in a hierarchy of executive capabilities that we identified in our research. Level one is being a highly capable individual. If we're lucky, we progress to level two and become a contributing team member. From there, it's on to level three, becoming a competent manager. A few make it from there to level four, which is to become an effective leader. But then there's level five, which we call simply level five. While you don't need to move in sequence from level one to level five, it might be possible to fill in some of the lower levels later, fully developed level five leaders embody all five layers on the pyramid. Now, I'm not going to belabor all five levels here. Levels one through four are somewhat self-explanatory, and they're discussed extensively by other authors. This chapter will focus instead on the distinguishing traits of the good to great leaders, in contrast to the comparison leaders, namely the level five traits. First, though, I want you to permit a brief digression to set an important context. It's important to understand that we were not looking for level five leadership or anything like it. In fact, at the beginning of the study, I gave the research teams explicit instructions to downplay the role of top executives. In fact, if I'm really quite honest about it, I said, we will not have a leadership answer in this book. I did not want to fall into the simplistic credit the leader or blame the leader thinking that is so commonplace today. The reason I did this is because the leadership is the answer to everything perspective is the modern equivalent to God is the answer to everything that held back our scientific understanding of the physical world in the Dark Ages. If you go back to the 1500s, people ascribed all events they didn't understand to God. Why did crops fail? God did it. Why did we have an earthquake? God did it. What holds the planets in place? God. But with the Enlightenment, we began the search for a more scientific understanding, and we began to understand physics and chemistry, biology, plate tectonics, and so forth. Not that we became atheists, but we gained deeper understanding about how the universe ticks. Now in the 2000s, every time we attribute everything to leadership, we're very much like those people in the 1500s. We're simply admitting our ignorance. Not that we should become leadership atheists. Leadership does matter. 
But every time we throw our hands up in frustration, reverting back to, well, the answer must be leadership, we prevent ourselves from gaining deeper, more scientific understanding about what makes great companies tick. So early in the project, I kept insisting, ignore the executives. But the research team kept pushing back. No, they said, there is something consistently unusual about them. We can't ignore them, Jim, even if you want to. And I'd push back. But the comparison companies also had leaders, even some great leaders. Look, you can't tell me that Lee Iacocca was not a leader. So what's different? They both had leaders. Back and forth, the debate raged over a couple of years. But finally, as should always be the case, the data won. What finally swayed me is that the good to great executives were all cut from the exact same cloth. It didn't matter whether the company was in consumer or industrial products, in crisis or steady state, offered services or products. It didn't matter when the transition took place or how big the company. All the good to great companies had level five leadership at the time of transition. Furthermore, the absence of level five leadership showed up as a consistent pattern in the comparison companies. And given that level five leadership cuts against the grain of conventional wisdom and cuts against our obsession with celebrity and big names and egocentric executives, it's important to note that this is an empirical finding, not an ideological one. Level five leaders are a study in duality, modest yet willful, humble yet fearless. To quickly grasp this concept, I like to think of United States President Abraham Lincoln, one of the few level five presidents in American history, who never let his own ego get in the way of his primary ambition for the larger cause of an enduring great nation. Yet those who mistook Mr. Lincoln's personal modesty, shy nature, and awkward manner as signs of weakness found themselves terribly mistaken to the scale of 250,000 Confederate and 360,000 Union lives, including Lincoln's own. While it might be a bit of a stretch to compare the good-to-great CEOs to Abraham Lincoln, they did display the same duality. Consider the case of one Coleman Mockler, CEO of Gillette from 1975 to 1991. During Mockler's tenure, Gillette faced three attacks that threatened to destroy the company's opportunity for greatness. Two of those attacks came as hostile takeover bids from Revlon, led by Ronald Perlman, a cigar-chomping raider with a reputation for breaking apart companies to pay down junk bonds and finance more hostile raids. The third attack came from the Coniston Partners, an investment group that bought 5.9% of Gillette stock and initiated a proxy battle to seize control of the board, hoping to sell the company to the highest bidder and pocket a quick gain on their shares. Had Gillette been flipped to Perlman at the price he offered, shareholders would have reaped an instantaneous 44% gain on their stock. Looking at $2.3 billion of short-term stock profit across 116 million shares, most executives would have capitulated, pocketing millions from flipping their own stock and cashing in on generous golden parachutes. But Coleman Mockler did not capitulate. He chose instead to fight for the future greatness of Gillette, even though he himself would have pocketed a substantial sum on his own shares. A quiet and reserved man, always courteous, Mockler had the reputation of a gracious, almost patrician gentleman. Yet those who mistook Mockler's reserved nature for weakness found themselves beaten in the end. In the proxy fight, 
senior Gillette executives reached out to thousands of individual investors, person by person, phone call by phone call, and won the battle. Now, you might be thinking, okay, come on. That just sounds like self-serving, entrenched management fighting for their interests at the expense of shareholder interests. And on the surface, it might look that way. But consider two key facts. First, Mockler and his team staked the company's future on huge investments in radically new shaving systems, later known as Sensor and Mach 3. Had the takeover been successful, these projects would almost certainly have been curtailed or completely eliminated, and none of us would be shaving with Sensor, Sensor for Women, or the Mach 3, leaving hundreds of millions of people to a more painful daily battle with stubble. Second, at the time of the takeover battle, Sensor promised significant future profits that were not reflected in the stock price for a very simple reason. Because Sensor was in secret development, no one knew about it. With Sensor in mind, the board and Mockler believed that the future value of the shares far exceeded the current price, even with that 44% price premium offered by the Raiders. To sell out would have made the short-term share flippers happy, but would have been utterly and completely irresponsible to long-term shareholders. In the end, Mockler and the board were proved right, stunningly so. If a share flipper had accepted the 44% price premium offered by Perlman and then invested that full amount in the market for 10 years through the end of 1996, he would have come out three times worse off than a shareholder who had stayed with Mockler and Gillette. Sadly, Mockler was never able to enjoy the full fruits of his effort. On January 25, 1991, the Gillette team received an advanced copy of the cover of Forbes magazine, which featured an artist's rendition of Mockler standing atop a mountain, holding a giant razor above his head in triumphal pose, while the vanquished languish on the hillsides below. The other executives razzed Mockler, who had likely declined requests to be photographed for the cover in the first place, amused at seeing him portrayed as a corporate version of Conan the Triumphant. Walking back to his office, Minutes after seeing this public acknowledgement of his 16 years of struggle, Mockler crumpled to the floor, struck dead by a massive heart attack. I do not know whether Mockler would have chosen to die in harness, but I'm quite confident that he would have not changed his approach as chief executive. His placid persona hid an inner intensity, a dedication to making anything he touched the best it could possibly be, not just for what he would get, but because he simply couldn't imagine doing it any other way. It wouldn't have been an option for Coleman Mockler to take the easy path and turn the company over to those who would milk it like a cow, destroying its potential to become great, any more than it would have been an option for Lincoln to sue for peace and lose forever the chance of an enduring great nation. A key aspect of Level 5 leaders is how they are ambitious for the company and set their successors up for success. When David Maxwell became CEO of Fannie Mae in 1981, the company was losing $1 million every single business day. Over the next nine years, Maxwell transformed Fannie Mae into a high-performance culture that rivaled the best Wall Street firms, earning $4 million every business day and beating the general stock market 3.8 to 1. Maxwell retired while still at the top of his game, feeling that the company would be ill-served if he stayed on too long and turned the company over to an equally capable successor, Jim Johnson. Shortly thereafter, Maxwell's retirement package, which had grown to be worth $20 million based on Fannie Mae's spectacular performance, became a point of controversy in Congress. Fannie Mae operates under a government charter. 
Maxwell responded by writing a letter to his successor in which he expressed concern that the controversy would trigger an adverse reaction in Washington that could jeopardize the future of the company. He then instructed Johnson to not pay him the remaining balance, fully $5.5 million, and asked that the entire amount be contributed to the Fannie Mae Foundation for Low-Income Housing. David Maxwell, like Darwin Smith and Coleman Mockler, exemplifies a key trait of Level 5 leaders, indeed, the key trait. Their ambition is first and foremost for the company, concerned with its success, rather than for their own riches and personal renown. They want to see the company even more successful in the next generation, comfortable with the idea that most people won't even know that the roots of that success trace back to their efforts. As one of my favorite Level 5 leaders said, I want to look out from my porch at one of the great companies in the world someday and be able to say simply, I used to work there. In contrast, the comparison leaders, concerned more with their own reputation for personal greatness, often failed to set the company up for success in the next generation. After all, what better way to show that thou art great than that the place falls apart when thou art gone? In over three-quarters of the comparison companies, we found executives who set their successors up for failure or chose weak successors or both. Some had what we came to call the biggest dog syndrome. They didn't mind other dogs in the kennel so long as they remained the biggest one. One comparison CEO was said to have treated successor candidates the way Henry VIII treated wives. Consider the case of Rubbermaid, a company that grew from obscurity to number one on Fortune's most admired company list and then just as quickly disintegrated into such sorry shape that it had to be acquired by Newell to save itself. The architect of this remarkable story, a charismatic and brilliant leader named Stanley Galt, became synonymous in the late 1980s with the success of the company. In 312 articles we collected on Rubbermaid, Galt came through to us as a hard-driving, egocentric executive. In one article, he responded to the accusation of being a tyrant with the statement, yes, but I'm a sincere tyrant. In another, Drawn directly from his own comments on leading change, the word I appears 44 times. I could lead the charge. I wrote the 12 objectives. I presented and explained the objectives. Whereas the word we appears just 16 times. Of course, Galt had every reason to be proud of his success. Rubbermaid generated 40 consecutive quarters of earnings growth under his leadership. It's an impressive performance and one that deserves our respect. But, and this is the key point, Galt did not leave behind a company that could be great without him. His chosen successor lasted only one year on the job, and the next in line faced a management team so shallow that he had to temporarily shoulder four jobs while scrambling to identify a number two executive. Galt's successors found themselves struggling not only with a management void, but also with strategic voids that would eventually bring the company to its knees. Of course, you might say, yes, Rubbermaid fell apart after Galt, but that just proves his personal greatness as a leader. Exactly. Galt was, indeed, a tremendous Level 4 leader, perhaps one of the best of the last 50 years, but he was not a Level 5 leader. And that is one key reason why Rubbermaid went from good to great for a brief, shining moment, and then just as quickly sadly, went from great to irrelevant. 
Another key trait of Level 5 leaders is their compelling modesty. In contrast to the very I-centric style of the comparison leaders, we were struck by how the good-to-great leaders didn't talk about themselves. During our interviews with the good-to-great leaders, we found that they'd talk about the company and the contributions of other executives as long as we'd like. But when we tried to get them to talk about themselves and their own contributions, it was like pulling teeth. When pressed to talk about themselves, they'd say things like, well, I hope I'm not sounding like a big shot, or if the board hadn't picked such a great successor, you probably wouldn't be talking with me today. Or, did I have a lot to do with it? Oh, that sounds so self-serving. I don't think I can take much credit. We were blessed with marvelous people. Or, there are plenty of people in this company who could do a better job than I do. And it wasn't just false modesty. Those who worked with the good to great leaders continually used words like quiet, humble, modest, reserved, shy, gracious, mild-mannered, self-effacing, understated, did not believe his own clippings, and so forth. Board member Jim Havlicek described Ken Iverson, the CEO who oversaw Nucor's transformation, this way. Ken is a very modest and humble man. I've never known a person as successful in doing what he's done that's as modest. And I work for a lot of CEOs of large companies. And that's true in his private life as well. The simplicity of him. I mean little things, like he always gets his dogs at the local pound. He has a simple house that he's lived in for ages. He only has a carport, and he complained to me one day about how he had used his credit card to scrape the frost off his windows, and he broke the credit card. You know, Ken, there's a solution for it. Enclose your carport. And he said, ah, uh, heck, it isn't that big of a deal. He's just that humble and that simple. The 11 good to great CEOs stand as some of the most remarkable CEOs of the century. Given that only 11 companies from the Fortune 500 met the exacting standards for entry into this study. These are the only 11 who did it. Yet despite their remarkable results, almost no one ever remarked about them. George Kane, Alan Wurzel, David Maxwell, Coleman Mockler, Darwin Smith, Jim Herring, Lyle Everingham, Joe Coleman, Fred Allen, Cork Walgreen, Carl Reichert, how many of these extraordinary executives had you heard of? When we systematically tabulated all 5,979 articles in the study, we found fewer articles surrounding the transition date for the good-to-great companies than for the comparisons by a factor of two. Furthermore, we rarely found articles that focused on the good-to-great CEOs. They just didn't want the attention. The good-to-great leaders never wanted to become larger-than-life heroes. They never aspired to be put on a pedestal or become unreachable icons. They were seemingly ordinary people, quietly going about the business of producing extraordinary results. Some of the comparison leaders provide a striking contrast. Scott Paper, the comparison company to Kimberly Clark, where Darwin Smith worked, hired a CEO named Al Dunlop, a man cut from a very different cloth than Darwin Smith. Dunlop loudly beat on his own chest, telling anyone who would listen, and quite frankly, many who would prefer not to, about what he had accomplished. Quoted in Business Week about his 19 months atop Scott Paper, he boasted, The Scott story will go down in the annals of American business history as one of the most successful, quickest turnarounds ever, making other turnarounds pale by comparison. Now there's an exercise in understatement. According to Business Week, 
Dunlap personally accrued $100 million for 603 days of work at Scott Paper. If you do the math, that's $165,000 per day, largely by slashing the workforce, cutting the R&D budget, and putting the company on growth steroids in preparation for sale. After selling the company and pocketing his quick millions, Dunlop wrote a book about himself in which he trumpeted his nickname, Rambo in Pinstripes. In his own book, he writes, I love the Rambo movies. Here's a guy who has zero chance of success and always wins. Rambo goes into situations against all odds, expecting to get his brains blown out, but he doesn't. At the end of the day, he succeeds. He gets rid of the bad guys. He creates peace out of war. That's what I do, too. One wonders if Al Dunlop had an editor. Darwin Smith may have enjoyed the mindless Rambo movies as well, but I suspect he never walked out of a theater and said to his wife, you know, I really relate to this Rambo character. He reminds me of me. Now granted, the Scott Paper story is one of the most dramatic in our study, but it's not an isolated case. In over two-thirds of the comparison cases, we noted the presence of a gargantuan personal ego that contributed to the demise or continued mediocrity of the company. We found this pattern particularly strong in the unsustained comparisons, cases where the company would show a leap in performance under a talented yet egocentric leader, only to decline in later years. Lee Iacocca, for example, saved Chrysler from the brink of catastrophe, performing one of the most celebrated, and deservedly so, turnarounds in American business history. Chrysler rose to a height of 2.9 times the market at a point halfway through Iacocca's tenure. Unfortunately, he then diverted his attention to making himself one of the most celebrated CEOs in American business history. Investors Business Daily and the Wall Street Journal chronicled how Iacocca appeared regularly on talk shows like The Today Show and Larry King Live, personally starred in over 80 commercials, entertained the idea of running for president of the United States. He was even quoted at one point to say, running Chrysler has been a bigger job than running the country. I could handle the national economy in six months. And then he widely promoted his autobiography. The book, modestly titled Iacocca, sold 7 million copies and elevated him to rock star status, leading him to be mobbed by thousands of cheering fans upon his arrival in Japan. Iacocca's personal stock soared, but in the second half of his tenure, Chrysler's stock fell 31% behind the general market. Sadly, Iacocca, who was a remarkable turnaround artist, had trouble leaving center stage and letting go of the perks of executive kingship. He postponed his retirement so many times that insiders at Chrysler began to joke that Iacocca stood for, I am chairman of Chrysler Corporation always. And when he finally did retire, he demanded that the board continue to provide a private jet and stock options. Later, in retirement, he joined forces with noted takeover artist Kirk Kerkorian to launch a hostile takeover bid for Chrysler. Chrysler experienced a brief return to glory in the five years after Iacocca's retirement, but the company's underlying weaknesses eventually led to a buyout by German carmaker Daimler-Benz. Certainly, the demise of Chrysler as a standalone company does not rest entirely on Iacocca's shoulders. The next generation, after all, made the fateful decision to sell the company to the Germans. But the fact remains, 
Iacocca's brilliant turnaround of the early 1980s, one which I personally respect, did not prove to be sustained, and Chrysler failed to become an enduring great company. But we should be careful. We should not think of Level 5 just being about humility and modesty. There is another side to Level 5, an unwavering resolve to do what must be done. It is essential to grasp that Level 5 leadership is not just humility. It is equally about ferocious resolve, an almost stoic determination to do whatever needs to be done to make the company great. We, in fact, debated for a long time on the research team about how to describe the good to great leaders. Initially, we penciled in terms like selfless executive and servant leader, but members of the team violently objected to this characterization. Those labels don't ring true, said Anthony Chiricos. It makes them sound weak or meek, but that's not at all the way I think of Darwin Smith or Coleman Mockler. They would do almost anything to make the company great. Then Eve Lee suggested, why don't we just call them level five leaders? If we put a label like selfless or servant on them, people will get entirely the wrong idea. We need to get people to engage with the whole concept to see both sides of the coin. If you only get the humility side, you miss the whole idea. And this brings me to a vital point. Level five leaders are fanatically driven, infected with an incurable need to produce results. They will sell the mills or fire their brother if that's what it takes to make the company great. When George Kane became CEO of Abbott Laboratories, it sat in the bottom quartile of the pharmaceutical industry. Kane didn't have an inspiring personality to galvanize the company, but he had something much more powerful, inspired standards. He could not stand mediocrity in any form and was utterly intolerant of anyone who would accept the idea that good is good enough. Kane then set out to destroy one of the key causes of Abbott's mediocrity, nepotism. Systematically rebuilding both the board and the executive team with the best people he could find, Kane made it clear that neither family ties nor length of tenure would have anything to do with whether you held a key position in the company. If you didn't have the capacity to become the best executive in the industry in your span of responsibility, then you would lose your paycheck. Such rigorous rebuilding might be expected from an outsider brought in to turn the company around, but Kane was an 18-year veteran insider and a family member, the son of a previous Abbott president. Holiday gatherings were probably tense for a few years in the Kane clan. Gee, I'm really sorry I had to fire you. Would you like another slice of turkey? In the end, family members were quite pleased with the performance of their stock, though for Kane set in motion a profitable growth machine that from its transition date in 1974 to 2000 created shareholder returns that beat the market 4.5 to 1, handily outperforming industry superstars Merck and Pfizer. Now, I'd like you to notice an interesting pattern developing here. Darwin Smith, Coleman Mockler, and George Kane all came from inside the company. Now, look on the other side. Stanley Galt, Al Dunlop and Lee Iacocca, comparison executives, wrote in as saviors from the outside, trumpets blaring. And in fact, when you look across the entire study, this is a systematic finding. The idea that you need an outside leader to come in and shake the place up is simply not supported by the evidence. In fact, quite the contrary. Going for a high-profile outside change agent, a savior CEO, is negatively correlated with a sustained transformation from good to great. 10 out of 11, 
good to great CEOs came from inside the company, and three of them from family inheritance. Now, the comparison companies turned to outsiders with six times greater frequency, yet they failed to produce sustained great results. A superb example of insider-driven change comes from Charles R. Cork, Walgreen III, who transformed Dowdy Walgreens into a company that outperformed the stock market by over 15 times from 1975 to 2000. After years of dialogue and debate within his executive team about Walgreens' food service operations, Cork sensed that the team had finally reached a watershed point of clarity and understanding. Walgreens' brightest future would be in convenient drugstores, not food service. Dan Jornt, who succeeded Walgreens as CEO in 1998, describes what happened next. Cork said at one of our planning meetings, okay, I'm going to draw a line in the sand. We're going to be out of the restaurant business completely in five years. Now, at that time, we had over 500 restaurants. You could have heard a pin drop. He said, I want to let everybody know the clock is ticking. Six months later, we were at our next planning meeting, and someone mentioned just in passing that we only had five years to be out of the restaurant business. Cork's not a real vociferous fellow. He sort of tapped on the table and said, listen, you have four and a half years. I said you had five years six months ago. Now you've got four and a half years. Well, that next day, things really clicked into gear winding down our restaurant business. He never wavered. He never doubted. He never second-guessed. Like Darwin Smith selling the mills at Kimberly Clark, Cork Walgreen's decision required stoic resolve. Not that food service was the largest part of the business, although it did add substantial profits. The real problem was more emotional. Walgreens had, after all, invented the malted milkshake, and food service was a long-standing family tradition dating back to his grandfather. Some food service outlets were even named after the CEO himself, a restaurant chain named Corky's. But no matter, if Walgreens had to fly in the face of long-standing family tradition in order to focus on where it could be the best in the world, which turned out to be convenient drugstores, Cork would do it, quietly, doggedly, simply. The quiet, dogged nature of the Level 5 leaders showed up not only in big decisions, like selling off the food service operations or fighting corporate raiders, but also in a personal style of sheer workmanlike diligence. Alan Wurzel, a second-generation family member who took over his family's small company and turned it into Circuit City, perfectly captured the gestalt of this trait. When I asked him about the differences between himself and his counterpart CEO at Circuit City's comparison company, Wurzel summed up the show horse and the plow horse. He was more of a show horse, whereas I was more of a plow horse. Alan Wurzel may have been a plow horse, but he was no ordinary plow horse. Consider the following two facts. One, he holds a Doctor of Jurisprudence degree from Yale. Clearly, his plow horse nature had nothing to do with a lack of intelligence. Second, this plow horse attained truly best-in-show results. Let me put it this way. If you had to choose between $1 invested in Circuit City or $1 invested in General Electric the day that legendary Jack Welch took over GE in 1981, and held to January 1, 2000, you would have been better off in Circuit City than GE by six times. Not a bad performance for a plow horse. You might expect that extraordinary results like these would lead Alan Wurzel to discuss the brilliant decisions he made. But when we asked him to list the top five factors in his company's transformation, ranked by importance, he gave a surprising answer. 
the number one factor was luck. We were in a great industry with the winds at our backs, he said. We pushed back, pointing out that we'd selected the good-to-great companies based on performance that surpassed their industry's average. Furthermore, the comparison company, Silo, was in the exact same industry with the same wind and, at the time of the transition, bigger sales. We debated this point for a few minutes, with Wurzel continuing his preference for attributing much of his success to just being in the right place at the right time. Later, when we asked to discuss the factors behind the enduring nature of the transformation, he said, the first thing that comes to mind is luck. I was lucky to find the right successor. Luck, what an odd factor to talk about. Yet the good to great executives talked about luck a great deal in our interviews.